Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Welcome back. The program's called Seldom Said. My name is Robert. This is the place where conversation matters. Very special guest today, Ms. Jamie Ruiz, counselor, at one time government official, devotee to the law. She's going to be sharing her experiences, her advice, and her plans for the future. Welcome to Seldom Said, Jamie. Thank you for having me. Can we start with a little bit of personal background, who you are, where you've been, what's brought you to this time and place? Sure. Um, you forgot former student in your introduction, which is very important, which has gotten us to this day. Um, my name is Jamie Ruiz. I am a, an attorney on Long Island. Uh, I was born in Ozone Park, New York, which is a subset of Queens, and moved to Long Island, Levittown specifically, uh, when I was high school age. Um, I went to Island Trees. I'm not sure if I mentioned that. Uh, I met I met you in AP World History, which um, it's funny that today brings us to this day because I was just looking and sharing my high school yearbook with a friend and someone who took AP World History with me had wrote about your class. And one of the things that stuck out to us in our memory and looking back to the yearbook is our visit to the UN. And I don't remember much from senior year or that visit aside from the fact that you told us that Russia had superb vanilla ice cream. <laughs> so, so I wish I remember more, but um, <laughs> that's, that's pretty much, much it. Um, a little bit about my, my background. Uh, after completing my education at Island Trees, I moved up to uh, upstate New York, Albany specifically, and I attended the university at Albany, uh, a place that I once uh, hated upon, upon arrival. Um, the, the dorms reminded me uh, of a prison cell at one point, um, but it was really truly an eye-opening experience. Um, and there I had studied uh, criminal justice and minored in Spanish and Latin Caribbean studies. Um, upon uh, completion of my degree there, I returned back to Long Island uh, and eventually uh, completed my education in law at Toro College in Central Islip and um, returned to Albany after that. Uh, for a career in government, and uh, now I'm back on Long Island, and I have uh, recently opened a solo law practice. You've spoken about uh, education, and you've experienced education at varied levels, high-quality education, which shows in your demeanor and your abilities. By the way, the Russians still have the finest vanilla ice cream in the world. I have still yet to try it, so that's on a, a, a bucket list for sure. <laughs> someday, someday. But given this description of a background, as a litigator, as an attorney, and having experienced all of these motives and moments in your life, what do you feel makes for a quality education? I think that a quality education gives you the essential skills to function in adult life. Um, and I think those skills are acquired over a period of time and when you're ready to learn and receive that education. Uh, I found that I was 17 when I had started my undergrad education. And it was much too young for me to understand the things that I need to know. Uh, to function as just a, a regular everyday adult, um, as an attorney, as a litigator, as a business owner, um, there's there was a bunch of skills that I was lacking that I would not really find until experiencing life. Um, and I think the crucial point in me learning those skills was the time between my undergrad education and my law education. 
So I worked full time for two years prior to going to law school. And in that time, I was working a full-time retail job in a management position. And I learned things there that I didn't learn in undergrad, managing a group of people, um, talking to people, having conversations that are uncomfortable, um, firing employees, um, being on time for a job, those type of skills were very crucial to me to learn um, prior to being ready for a graduate level education. So I think that that time, and I hate the phrase gap year, um, because I don't think it's a gap at all. I think it's crucial to your learning experience. Um, And I found that entering law school with that experience was very crucial to me and set me apart from my colleagues that had transitioned from undergrad to law school um, because they were not prepared, uh, I would say, in a personal level of maturity to handle what lied before them in their education. At this stage of your life then, Jamie, what do you find more important, being aware of the answers or knowing the proper questions? I'm glad you asked that because I do, I do mention that later on in our discussion is that knowing what to ask is more important than knowing the answers. Um, I think that we live uh, in a society today where we promote asking questions, but we're not equipping our young people to know what questions to ask um, and to formulate the questions. Um, So I I, I think knowing to ask questions, when to ask questions, when not to ask questions, um, and really put some hard thought into what questions to ask is really crucial. I think knowing everything is useless unless you know how to get there. Have you found that getting there is a variable process? As far as educational goals? As far as motivation and reaching a goal? For me, I will, and being asked by those who are in law school now, I will tell them that that was the easiest part. Taking the bar was the easiest part. Being in law school is the easiest part. I think the hardest part was the app, is the application, is taking everything that you learned and now making a career out of it. And the variables in which you face post-education aren't things that you necessarily learn in, at your institution, whether it be law, medicine, um, business, uh, some type of liberal arts. Uh, you will have to go somewhere every day and be in an office or a room and communicate with others that may not share the same ideals with you, that you will disagree, um, that may not treat you with the same respect that you treat them. And that's what makes a working environment so challenging. Everyone at that point, whether you're at a law firm or a business, they've probably done the same amount of work as you, and this is an assumption, to get there. They've, they've received their master's degree. They've, they've taken the, and passed the bar. And now you, you all have to figure out how to get along. And that can be very, very challenging, especially when you have work to do in front of that. An earlier guest uh, some time ago was asked if he had an epiphanal moment in his life, a Damascus moment, if you will. He said the day he walked past the gates of Auschwitz. Now, that's an incredibly catastrophic example. But we all have those moments to some degree. Did you have an epiphanal moment when it came to the issue of whether you wanted to be a lawyer or something else? Well, it's I, I wouldn't that's a very remarkable moment to cite to to change your career path. Um, 
or, or to incite some type of fire within you to, pra- to, to practice in a, a particular career. Um, mine was less sensational, <laughs> as should you say. Um, I really started to get a get, to obtain an understanding of the law in my undergraduate career, and it was not really through taking a class, but um, through working with underserved populations. Uh, as an undergrad student, I was debating a career in teaching or law, and I took a volunteer position with uh, Catholic Services of the Capital Region. And I was placed in a primarily um, Hispanic uh, population, an elementary school, uh, where there were a lot of transplants from Central America. So this particular public school had developed a curriculum for Spanish-speaking students to excel, where they would have three days of English curriculum completely, and then two days of Spanish curriculum. So they'd do their um, curriculum in English, math, science, what have you, um, in either one language or the other. Uh, And I got the opportunity to work alongside a teacher who was bilingual, who was teaching a fourth grade class. And the social economical aspects of the student population had really impacted me because of what the students were going through on a daily basis, not outside of school. Uh, These were students that were affected by gang violence, uh, immigration issues, legal issues, uh, family family issues. And um, that really impacted me to want to make some type of change. Um, And I think that although teaching is always an option, um, I felt that the law would enable me to better serve that type of population. Speaking of that issue of change and the ways that you assist in stimulating it, your intellectual acumen precedes you so that in point of fact, there's a bit of defensiveness there in that you're protected by how well you know things and what you know. Shirley Chisholm, Congresswoman first of African-American ancestry at New York City Congress, was once asked what is more difficult, being black or being a woman. She said, without hesitation, being a woman. How would you react to that? I would agree. I think that it's hard to say what people see first, um, but I would have to say that people see you first as a woman and then as your race um, or your ethnic background. And I think that there is a certain edge still to being a man in in a professional setting and in politics. Um, Women are still making great strides in the law and politics and government. But there is, and I was just having this conversation yesterday, there is a hesitation to becoming involved in politics. And we haven't equipped women... uh, uh, women with the right tools to become effective politicians. I think as you can, just taking a look at, at American history, um, figures like JFK, he, he came from a political family. He was groomed as a man and as a young boy um, in politics by osmosis. Um, and women don't have that same advantage because that hasn't really happened. Um, and, and, and I, I can't speak from a statistical standpoint, but those women that are in politics, it'd be interesting to take a look at what their children are doing, their, their female children, and whether they're opting in or opting out for a life of politics. So I think that, yes, it, it, is, it, is, quite, 
it is harder to be a woman because I don't I still in the political uh, arena, I don't think we've equipped a women with the right tools. We've told women, um, Senator Gillibrand has the um, off the sidelines campaign um, to get women involved in politics. Um, but I'm not sure if we're doing enough to tell them how and what and where. Um, I think by encouraging is great, but it's not enough. Given what you've just said, there is one example that strikes to my memory uh, some time ago, quite a while ago. A student asked for the desire to speak or be in contact with Gloria Steinem, well-known female advocate. We arranged for it, and the one bit of advice that Steinem answered with, underlined numerous times, was let them know you're there. Do you find yourself or do you see others who are of your gender having to let people know you're there to be aggressive even when one doesn't want to? A couple points to that. I think the millennial position now, especially in relation to technology, is that everything is at your fingertips. So it's very easy to hide behind your iPhone screen, your computer screen, instead of getting out there and making face-to-face connections. Um, And I think that is very, very important um, is to, and, and we're not encouraging people to, to, to effectively let them know that we exist and we're there. Um, we need to have that FaceTime. Um, you need to make memories with people. Um, and I'm not saying you need to have a picnic, a sunset picnic, picnic on, you know, the boardwalk to have someone remember you. Um, but to get face to face and to shake people's hands and to and to let people know you exist. Um, it's not enough, I think, um, especially for women to send an email. Uh, I think so many things are lost in translation that that face to face contact is so important. You said something that strikes me as rather interesting. You claimed and contended and argued with good reason that everyone should go to law school. It's like to some that I've shared that comment with anonymously without using names, someone responded, well, that's like telling me everybody should find out what it feels like to to drown. How would you respond to this idea that everyone should be in a law school for at least one year? Well, I think (laughs) I contend that's rather dramatic because (laughs) I wouldn't equate law school to a near-death experience, although some might. Um, I think that, and for me, strictly speaking for me, and some may agree or disagree, I learned a lot of critical skills that I can apply every day outside of the practice of law. I truly appreciated learning how to truly write and and receive con- constructive criticism on my writing where there was really a care for what I was putting down on paper, both grammatically and, and in content. And I think that is also, and, and we can relate this to technology, is that There is no – you can read someone's email and and be truly taken back on the lack of skill in, in their writing. I think there there's a, a, the, a lack of appreciation on how to truly write in the English language or in any language for that matter. Um, and I think effective writing is how we um, garner professional respect. Um, so, so, so that being one of the skills, um, I was able to to truly learn how to argue a point intelligibly, both aloud and in the written word. 
uh, not coming from a place of emotion, but by using facts and research to support my argument. Uh, I think this is a, a, a particularly ripe um, skill to have in the political climate. Um, I think that we're arguing a lot of things from a point of and topics from a point of emotional rage or disappointment. Um, and we really should independently look at facts and research and form opinions that are true to, to what we find. Um, and then I, I hate to use the term networking because it sounds very cheesy, um, but putting myself in front of people and, and having conversations with strangers was a skill that I really honed and embraced in law school. And I think since it's so easy and I go back to hiding behind a screen to send an email to someone's, you know, after receiving their business card rather than give them a phone call or set up a meeting um, is really is really crucial. And and that was a skill that w ha has helped me in my in growing my law practice, um, has helped me in business. Um, and I, I think that's that's something that I, I definitely had honed during my education. Um, and then lastly, it it prepared me to work hard. Um, the first year of law school, I don't believe it, it. Yes, it is academically challenging, but it's the amount of work that you're faced with, and you really have to uh, almost triage the importance of what you need to do, what you have to do. And that's an everyday skill. Um, as a practicing attorney, you, you need to know what you have on in court that day, the next day in weeks coming, and you have to prepare and you have to prioritize what comes first. Um, and for any busy professional, I think that's a, a tremendous skill to have in order to be successful. A child being given the first exposure to biblical readings, Quranic, whatever the circumstance might be, is often taught an absolute. Uh, in the beginning, there was the Word, the Word was God, and God made man. And then suddenly, you read the attitudes of persons who were students of that particular field, just choosing it as an example. Thomas Aquinas, medieval theologian, was once asked, how do you explain the existence of Godhead? And he said, I take a leap of faith. I don't know. Maybe. Who is to say? When you consider law and the practice of law as one sees it in this country, is it an absolute? Or has it forced you to become a relativist on occasion? I think I've been able to appreciate both ideologies. Um, in law school, I think that you are encouraged to see the relative truth. And that will help you make an argument for or against a particular issue. Um, but but let's take a very simple example. Um, and we'll, we'll do two perspectives, the law enforcement perspective and the, and the attorney's perspective. So a police officer will issue a ticket for someone he's pulled over and he's discovered that that person has a suspended license. That's an absolute for the police officer. He runs that particular, he or she runs that particular person's license in their database, discovers they're suspended, issues a ticket. Absolute. That's a, a violation of the vehicle and traffic law in New York State. Then that person comes to you and says, this being your potential client and you being the attorney, says to you, I didn't know my license was suspended. I've done X, Y, and Z to correct it, but now I'm facing a misdemeanor charge. That's where the attorney comes in and has to apply the relative truth in order to achieve some type of result for their client. Um, for the police officer, it's, it's very different because 
they're following the law and enforcing the law as it's written because that's the what they have to do but as your as the attorney um, you need to find the relative truth to help your client come to a solution so i think that there's two sides and they don't always meet in the middle absolute and relative truth but where that's where I believe law enforcement and the legal community kind of have to meet in the middle sometimes. By nature, then, might we presuppose that law is a personal interpretation? To a degree when you're analyzing the facts, um, but part of coming to a legal solution is applying the law to those facts. So it's to a degree personal to your client, but you're at the same time, you're analyzing the situation. Um, I'm sorry, you're analyzing the law uh, with your current set of facts. So, so you'd like to, to find a favorable solution, but you're given the circumstances that you're given. So it can only be so personal. If I were to ask you to click your heels, close your eyes, make a wish, and place yourself back into the past on the first day of your first legal position, can you describe your feelings? <laughs> it was awful. <laughs> Shortly, very, very short and, and discreet. Um, I had taken a position. It only lasted four weeks. Um, so clicked my heels and, it, you know, it was pretty much over. Uh, I had taken a, a legal secretary position, which truly was just um, part of a well-oiled machine where I was entering data into an AS400 system, which um, – for those of you who don't know what that is, it's uh, basically uh, synonymous to the computers they had at Jurassic Park. Uh, they were the black screen with the neon writing, and I was entering certified mail uh, certificates that were evidence of uh, defendants in um, housing litigation that they had received whatever legal documents that had been sent to them. It was horribly boring. I felt so disconnected to the process, and I was really kind of disenfranchised um, because I did not envision my first legal job to, uh, to be this mundane. But shortly after that, uh, I found a position with a solo practitioner and uh, his focus was in civil litigation, real estate, but primarily uh, in bankruptcy. And I really started feeling, one, I was learning lots of, of great things that I needed to know for law school, civil procedure, federal civil procedure at that, um, bankruptcy, which is, is such a, a niche field. Um, I was truly helping people, and I was seeing matters to resolution. So that was um, a great segue for me. I started that position the summer um, before I started my legal career. And it was really a great um, compliment to, to starting my legal education. So uh, I didn't start out as swiftly as I thought and, and uh, really uh, uh, demonstrating the scales of justice as I thought I I would, but it was a build. It, it really was a build up, and I think that there was a reason why I I felt the need to uh, leave there after four weeks and go on a vacation to Aruba, um, <laughs> and I thought maybe never come back. But uh, in coming back and finding that other position, I think it it truly prepared me and, and took me to places that I didn't think that. It would um, expanding upon my. Um, I, I ended up upon my bankruptcy. My interest in bankruptcy. I ended up taking courses in bankruptcy in law school, and um, spending close to two years in in Toro's bankruptcy clinic and helping um, pro bono clients 
with Chapter 7 personal bankruptcies and sometimes Chapter 13 bankruptcies. So um, and and now to see that come full circle, I've been admitted to the federal bar as well. So that one position kind of changed the trajectory of my legal career. And it would have been an area of law I probably would have never considered. Do you feel then that the average citizen that you've come in contact with is totally ignorant of the process? Oh, absolutely. And and it's it's harsh to say ignorant because we there really isn't I think enough information out there to make the average layperson aware of what the bankruptcy process is. Um, well, one for for instance, uh, bankruptcy is practiced in federal court. Um, there's state law application as well. Um, however, that's something that one person may not know is that they're not going to their local district court. They're going to the, the Southern District of New York, downtown Brooklyn, or they're going to Big White Building in Central Islip. And um, that can be very intimidating. Um, federal court's very different than state court. Um, but I, I think there's a lot of misconceptions around the process. Um, one of the big ones being if I file for bankruptcy, my credit is ruined forever and there's no way for me to really come back from that, which, which is a common misconception. Um, bankruptcy is simply a mark on your credit. And for, with Chapter 7 bankruptcies, uh, you're given the opportunity to discharge some of your debt, um, unsecured debt primar um, primarily, um, and what it does is it, it gives you a fresh start. So you're able to it's, – it's almost um, very similar to getting your first credit card after a bankruptcy discharge. You're starting to build your credit from scratch. And yes, it is on your credit report, but it doesn't disallow you from obtaining credit after a bankruptcy. Um, and I think it was very crucial in my, my time – um, as a paralegal, to learn all these things and at a very um, rapid pace because it was post-2008 and post the mortgage crisis and many people were seeking relief through bankruptcy um, or they were facing a foreclosure. And um, there was so many misconceptions about the process and um, – what the implications were to your credit, that some people avoided it uh, completely. So so there isn't, I don't think there's a lot of information out there to the average consumer about what their options are if they've, um, they've acquired a, a good amount of debt or are facing liens or foreclosures or other damaging items to their credit. Do you feel then that bankruptcy can be inculcated in a young mind, at least a young mind primarily entering business for the first time, that bankruptcy is actually a tool toward financial solvency? Well, yes. And, and I think that the, the media has painted a picture. I mean, you have very influential figures in business, our president being one, who've, who've utilized business bankruptcy in order to achieve solvency. So it's not necessarily an end, but a beginning, and especially on a consumer level. Um, bankruptcy is utilized by those who are facing um, extreme medical debt, um, in in some instances, that debt is dischargeable. So um, people who have had family members who are very ill, whether with a terminal illness or an illness that requires constant medical care, um, I think that they don't know that bankruptcy it can be an outlet for them. 
So I, 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 my wish for that particular area of law is to to erase the stigma that's associated with it um, because business people use these type of tools all the time, whether it be through bankruptcy or debt settlement or um, other types of financial tools within the law. Um, I think it's 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 good to know what your options are um, as a young person starting out um, than, than to fear really the unknown. Or rather, I guess by the pure nature of the subject, skirting the issue of politics, one is curious as to how you segued from bankruptcy law and a fine career in the private practice of law into state government. So as I was, I've always had an interest in public service um, and Toro having a um, focus on public interest, my first, while also working at, at, a, at a law firm as a first-year law student, I interned at the Suffolk County Executive's Office. Um, and in that position, I was really able to get my feet wet in um, local government. And I worked in the Office of Community Affairs, which is really, um, at that point, was a, a three-prong office dealing with minority affairs, women's affairs, and the Youth Bureau. Um, and I was really able to dive into projects that had a direct effect on the community. Um, for instance, I worked on a youth initiative that focused on bringing out the pressures of um, bringing out issues uh, for young people such as peer pressure and how those, how peer pressure can develop into other things, drug use, um, gang involvement, um, and particularly in the setting of Suffolk County, these issues are very, very real um, to, to teens in the community. Um, so what I had developed as part of my responsibilities in the internship uh, was a program that brought students, at-risk students, to the Suffolk County First District Court. And they were able to meet with different players in the courtroom. So the court officers, the defense attorneys, the prosecutors, the judges. Um, and they were able to watch defendants go on the record. And this was specifically in the context of drug court. So they were seeing people who are affected by addiction come before a judge and report how they're doing, whether positive or negative. Um, and it's very important for young people to see that it's very easy to drive around in your friend's car, getting stoned, getting drunk, and then you get pulled over. And then what? And how does that have implications on my life? And I think as a teenager, you're not really thinking about this. So this trip kind of made this come full circle and really started a dialogue. And after we had uh, finished our our visit to the courthouse, we went over to the law center and we had a roundtable discussion about what we saw. How does that affect us? How has that affect us in, in, our, in our daily life and what we can do to um, to not end up in the position that they saw the defendants in that day? And if they did, how would they deal with it? Um, so that program was very inspiring to me because I was really given free reign to, to develop it. Um, and having that private law practice um, experience while simultaneously doing public service kind of it, – it allowed me to hone my skills in both government and litigation and private practice. Um, so I continued doing um, – those things while 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 um, maintaining my position as a paralegal, 
Uh, I eventually went on to um, intern for Senator Gillibrand's Long Island Regional Office. And uh, there I concentrated um, on mostly constituent issues. So that was anything from veterans, um, veterans affairs, housing, um, interfacing with municipalities and uh, their relation with um, between local and federal government working together um, and and serving the senator's population um, on Long Island, both Nassau and Suffolk County. Um, so I really developed those skills rather simultaneously to private law practice. Um, and then it influenced me to become an attorney in government uh, at, uh, c- after concluding my career at, uh, at Toro. I was once asked to mentor a young man in regard to his interview at an Ivy League college, grad school in business and economics. He was prepared. He had a habit that he'd brought under control, hadn't solved it, but he had brought it under control as most addicted individuals will. Midway through the interview, the professor asked him, what does it feel like to get high? His response was interesting. He asked the gentleman, you're a Harvard grad, correct? Gentleman said yes. He responded by saying, it's like being granted acceptance into Harvard every day. Do we really understand what's going on out there? when it comes to the opiate crisis and ancillary subjects? Simply put, no. Um, my general feelings, and, and I'll, I'll give uh, my background on it. Uh, I lost my brother to opioid addiction as a third-year law so- student. Um, and to understand the quickness of how opiate addiction can change your life, uh, my brother was first arrested for a heroin-related crime, um, and particularly uh, possession of paraphernalia, as a first-year law student, by the middle of my third year in law school, my brother had passed from an overdose. So in less than three years' time, opiate addiction had changed the trajectory of my entire life. And until you are affected in some way by addiction, whether it's alcohol or or or, subst- or or substances, other substances, I don't think there is a an understanding or grasp of the necessity and the urgency in which we need to address this type of issues. Um, addiction is a mental health issue. Um, and I think that we are still trying to understand addiction and wrap our heads around it. And until we have some type of understanding, um, we can't make strides to move forward. Um, there's still a lot of guilt and shame associated with addiction that it's hard to find solutions. So... You'll hear um, people say, well, you know, if someone committed a crime and they were under the influence of drugs, they should pay the full penalties and face all the ramifications associated with that. And that's, that's an argument that, you know, people making strides in drug treatment court really don't agree with. Um, and it's that mental health component that's the gap. Um, whether people have the capacity to appreciate what they're doing. Um, my brother, in, in asking him about his addiction, would say, I'm a good kid. I just got hooked on drugs. And anything he did that was wrong or against the law um, was under the influence of drugs. So taking that away, it's a completely different different person and different ballgame. 
Be very open about the substance and the occasions of your life, both positive, negative, good, and bad. I do remember being asked to mentor someone. He disappeared from my radar for a time, grew to like him intensely because I enjoyed his children. He rented a hotel room, went inside, never came out. So there is that obvious loss of a life. And the rationale and the reasons behind it are treated almost economically by society at large. Another stat. What would you propose? We're talking about the difficulties, but it's like being in a lifeboat with a hole in the bottom. What do we do? Row to shore, where shore? I think that, and I face this in my own career as a volunteer um, and in law, I feel that mental health and other issues that are uncomfortable to talk about it is it, the crucial part is starting to have truthful conversations. And that's why I've decided, one, to be very open about my brother's addiction and, and my experience. Um, this Christmas Eve will be five years uh, that I've um, I haven't had my brother um, by my side. And it's really encouraged me to start having those conversations because what I've learned is um, people don't want to talk about the things that don't make them feel warm and fuzzy. And those conversations need to be had to make change. Um, and it all starts internally. And my, my advice would be for any addict suffering for addiction is to tell a loved one. And that sounds very cliche, and it sounds like you've heard it a thousand times on commercials and in the media. Um, but from my own experience, those are the people who are going to help you get sober and, and change the course of your life. Um, just by having that first hard conversation, by saying, I'm an addict or I have a problem um, or I've been using drugs and I can't stop. Having those conversations are crucial to someone being with you next year or not. And and that that is, is the hard truth and making young people who are facing those issues able to have those conversations um, and encouraging them to ask for help. What was your brother's name? Matthew. I would imagine whatever an ethereal quest we seek for the moments after we take our last breath, wherever that might be, Matthew must be very proud of you. I know I am. Thank you. For those who want to pursue a career like yours, college is that opium in and of itself, but the expense, the cost, one can mortgage themselves into 30 years. What's going on? What can be done? And what aspect of the college experience do you feel has to be directed attention to first? There's, there's a few things, and, and we've mentioned them um, in, in this conversation, is that um, really to put some thought into what you're doing and making informed decisions, um, asking questions. When I first embarked on my educational career, starting with undergrad, I was under the assumption that I had to take a particular path to become a lawyer. I had to be a criminal justice major and go to a school that specialized in criminal justice and had a high ranking and kind of ch check off the list. Um, and that is not uh, – I ended up throwing that list away. Um, very early on in my educational career. Um, I don't think anyone knows what they want to do 
when they enter undergrad. Maybe they do, maybe they don't, but the trajectory of that will change. And just to consider what happens uh, when those cha- when you want to make that change. Um, another food for thought, and, and this is something that I say to um, law school students who ask me for um, advice or, or that I counsel and mentor, is that will the name of your college mean anything to your employer five years from now? And this is, I say you're, you're, you're hired as a first-year associate. The answer is no, and, and I'm a firm believer of that, is that after you've been in the field for a certain amount of time, your professional skills and your reputation will become the most important thing. And that's whether you go to LIU Post, if you go to Harvard, if you go to St. John's um, or any other institution, um, you have to do the most with the tools that your institution gives to you. So don't go to school for a name. Um, And that name is going to come with a cost, wherever it may be. And to assess, really do a cost-benefit analysis on why you're choosing to go to a school. I think names are very important to high school seniors, and then they become um, college seniors, and they're starting to rethink, what did I get myself into? Um, and then to, to touch on the financial aspect is don't sign your life away. Um, for instance, a law school education is equivalent to buying a house upstate <laughs> uh, in cash. So... I would suggest to to be smart, to make informed decisions, to use numbers, um, to use an accountant, to figure out how you're going to pay these things back. Um, The climate for loans is always changing. Um, Forgiveness programs are changing. They may not be available um, in in later years in regards to public service forgiveness or or other methods of financial um, forgiveness for student loans. So to really inform yourself and, and, and be an educated consumer when it comes to uh, completing your education. I, fi- I found that in I completed my master's degree in business at um, the University at Albany. And as a working professional, I was able to assume that financial responsibility by myself and complete that program without any debt. And that has proven to be a cherry on top, not only in my resume, but in my legal career, because running a, a law practice is, is running a business. Um, and I made an informed decision by choosing to go to that institution rather than others. Um, so with all those being said is uh, all those items being said um the takeaway for me would be is to do your research um seek outside help whether it be an accountant or someone you trust to make sure this is financially feasible and to do things for the right reasons for your future career and not for a name on a resume Guidance departments on both the high school and collegial level are presented with a challenge of helping people assume their goals at no matter what age. There is the apocryphal story of Dr. Martin Luther King going down to his guidance counselor and being told that no man of his ethnicity or race could become an attorney, so he determined to become one. Malcolm X was told the same thing and quit school and pursued his own venues in his own way. Do you feel, in a sense, we go out of our way to tell people what to do at ages in which they're not entirely sure whether they like broccoli or not? (laughs) I'm going to have to agree with that. I think that we are instructing young minds to pursue career paths that they may not know anything about 
just by simply saying you would be good at this. Um, anything that I've set out to do or um, pondered on on pursuing, I've had someone say, oh, you'd be great at that. But that's really where the conversation ends. And that's where I go back to making informed decisions is that we're not giving young people enough information. I didn't talk to, for instance, I didn't talk to a practicing attorney until maybe my last year in undergrad. And at that point, I was considering, I had been considering the legal path for my whole undergrad career. So I I think that's a fatal flaw is that we're not having, again, the hard conversations that need to be had. Um, It's not enough to say to a a young person, you're great at arguing, you would be an excellent attorney. It's just not enough. We're not giving someone the tools to see whether or not they would be a right fit um, for a particular educational course or career. We're approaching the end of what has been a truly informative and interesting program. It's always the case when one looks at the clock, the time has gone by rather quickly. But if we if we were to forecast emotionally, mentally, psychologically, 10 years from now, our engineer is going to be married into wealth, living in Southampton. I'd hope so. I hope indeed. I can swim in your pool. Indeed. <laughs> she, she's promised. Excellent. I, in turn, will be looking for my hairline. <laughs> <laughs> what is the dream, Jamie? Where are you in 10 years? I think that um, I've really been inspired as of late to keep my brother's memory alive by way of scholarship um, and growing a business, whether it be in a legal capacity or not, um, to further that goal. I think that there's a lot of work to be done on Long Island especially to help those who are experiencing or affected by addiction. And I would like to be able to lessen that burden because I know what that feels like and I know how hard it is to overcome and then for me to survive. So that would be my goal in the next decade. To survive or to excel? I call it survival, but it, it in, in all truthfulness... It was, it gave me the will to excel. Um, in that very short time between my brother passing and now, um, I was able to pass two bar exams, complete a master's degree, um, work in, in very, to me, prestigious positions within government and law, and Anyone that I've encountered who um, has faced adversity would say they just survived, but truly they did excel. Um, so that's that's in my own journey in, in self-discovery is to realize that I, I indeed did excel. Any final words for a young lady in the listening audience who says to herself at this moment, that's the path I'd like to take, that's the goal I'd like to achieve, those are the moments I want to experience. What would you say? To not be afraid of the the obstacles and or or rather overwhelmed of the obstacles ahead of you. Um, becoming an attorney is a very long journey, and for me, it's a journey that almost didn't happen. Um, I got into one law school. I was rejected from all others, and. Um, I really had to prepare for the alternative that I wasn't going to become an attorney. Um, but I think that if, you, if you're if you not afraid of the outcome, 
you're able you're able to take the steps to to start the journey. So just taking that first step. We'd certainly like to thank Ms. Jamie Ruiz for her expertise, her commentary, and for being a guest. As Cezanne once said, uh, Jamie is indeed a rose amongst thorns. This is seldom said. Come see us again. Mm-hmm.